Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Read the Chicago Reader to get up to speed on what's what in Chicago. Culture. Food. Arts and entertainment. Weekly concert listings. Weekly event listings. The environment. Travel. I can continue, but you get the point. And for all of you Chicago political junkies, raw weekly columns on real city politics from Maya Dukmasova and our very own Ben Jarofsky. The Chicago Reader. Free to the public in newsstands throughout the city and online at chicagoreader.com. Read it now and be a more informed Chicagoan. Been talking about this interview for a long time, and this is a very important interview for me. It's technically my union boss, D, uh, John Schloys, president of the News Guild, and I'm a member of that union. I pay dues to that union. So, D, could you take that T-shirt off and put a nice shirt on? We got the union president here, huh? And put the bong away. How many times do I say, when we have a union president, don't bring out the bomb, all right? John Schloys, I haven't done that gag in a long time. Uh, I can see you really appreciate it. Uh, welcome to the Ben Jarofsky Show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I look at it the other way. I, I, you know, my members are, are is my boss. Uh, oh, in that case, hey, Schloys, change the shirt, all right? And you put the bong away, too, okay? <laughs> Just for the record, folks, John Schloys is not smoking from a bong. It was a bad joke. <laughs> yeah, it's All the middle right. of a work day. <laughs> yes, it's the middle of a wow. The great ones, that doesn't stop them, John. And okay, I'm not either. What's that? I'm no. not either. All right, okay. Uh, Willie Nelson, on the other hand. All right. Uh, uh, all serious notes, uh, John Schleus is the president of the News Guild. Uh, I am a member of the News Guild. I Everybody knows I have very strong convictions pro-union. My show is uh, sponsored by unions. Uh, and in particular, John, we're going to get into this. I believe that uh, newspaper unions are exceedingly, news unions, I should say, are exceedingly important in this day and age, in the Trump day and age, uh, protecting the integrity of the, the news and the integrity and jobs of the news gatherers. Uh, so we'll talk about all that uh, and some of the issues that um, news outlets are facing right now. I just saw, by the way, there's an effort to uh, uh, unionize the New Yorker. So everything is, wow, man, the New Yorker. All right, so why don't you just start by telling folks a little bit of something about yourself. That's the first time you've been on my show. Uh, how'd you get to the point in your life uh, where you're the head of a union? Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's you know it's a, it's a wild ride. It is not something I expected to do in my youth. It's not something I expected to do three or four years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in rural Arkansas in a town called Harmony Grove. That's basically a Baptist church, a Methodist church, and a school and a four-way stop. Uh, unions were not part of the culture that I was raised in. I didn't really understand what they were, but uh, I, I did sort of fall in love with newspapers. Uh, I had uh, my grandmother who helped raise me. She would subscribe to a, a morning and an afternoon paper, uh, which you don't even see afternoon newspapers anymore, uh, but she would get two newspapers every single day. Uh, and, you know, I grew up reading them with her. Uh, and uh, later, you know, when I got out of college, uh, well, and, and during college, I fell in love with college radio and student media. 
and then just got the bug where basically what I wanted to do was to go out in the world and find stories and tell them uh, and, and make them into a reality. So, uh, you know, my first job was not even really a job. It was an unpaid uh, sort of uh, gig with a local news blog. I wrote for them kind of snarky stuff. Then uh, because I had sort of developed this like uh, habit, a reputation of sort of being like an early adopter of Twitter, for instance, we used to have these things. This is when I was in Northern Arkansas, these things called tweet ups where we would meet uh, with people who were on Twitter, like literally the five people who were like on Twitter uh, 10, 12 years ago, uh, we'd meet up uh, at like a tea house and just like talk about like technology and the future of, I don't know, the world. Uh, so I sort of developed a reputation for someone who was like, I guess, more digitally savvy. I, I sort of knew how to do a little bit of computer programming. I ended up getting my first legitimate job at the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. They hired me. Um, uh, basically, I, was, I think I showed up in like jean shorts with like a beer on my breath and I wasn't expecting an interview at all, but it ended up turning into a job uh, as the online editor <laughs> for um, what were five dailies and 11 weekly newspapers. Uh, so it was a huge responsibility to give to a kid, uh, but they needed someone who could kind of jump into this. Not a union paper, uh, but I had a great time there, uh, uh, learned a lot, uh, did a lot. Uh, innovated a lot, then uh, went back to school, kind of finished up my degree, decided I got to I got to figure out, you know, what I'm going to do next. Uh, and what ended up happening next uh, was after an internship at the Seattle Times, I ended up at the L.A. Times. Uh, this was in 2013 and uh, started there as sort of a, a mixture of graphics reporting, data reporting and, and traditional reporting, but doing visuals as well, like building election maps or, you know, digging through vast amounts of data. Uh, but, you know, for folks that, that know, uh, the LA Times successfully unionized in uh, January of 2018, and I was one of those uh, members right at the beginning to organize the, the publication. And we did it because we wanted to save the future of the Los Angeles Times and its journalists. And uh, and it was huge for us to do it because right at that moment, we were owned by a company that that had rotating management, uh, had no care about us. They, they threw away our, our paid uh, accrued vacation. They just got rid of it. Uh, and they could make changes implement, and implement them on us without any of our say. So we organized our effort. We won with 85% of the vote. That was about 400 people. Uh, and uh, since then, I mean, you know, the, the News Guild has been on a wave of organizing. I mean, even right before that, they were on a wave of organizing. But, you know, in, in the years prior to 2018, we had organized about a thousand workers um, in, in kind of that decade before. And then in 2018, we organized 1,400 workers. That was a record for us. And then in 2019, we beat that record by organizing 1,500 workers. And as of today, as of this moment, we've organized 675 workers just in 2020 alone with another uh, 370 pending right now, waiting for either voluntary recognition, fighting for that, or an election. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> All right. Now, let's, let's just go back uh, to the L.A. Times for a moment you, uh, and, and think about this. You were a young man. Uh, you were, got a job at the L.A. Times, which is one of the preeminent uh, newspapers in America. I believe the ownership at the time, correct me if I'm wrong, is, wasn't it the Chicago Tribune that owned it in that? Am I right, right or am I wrong? Yes, but they had this dreadful name that they'd gone to at that moment called Tronk. Yes, which I'm well Tribune aware. Tribune online content <laughs> it was a joke. At one point, I was owned by Tronk. Uh, <laughs> That's a whole other story uh, where the reader was owned by Trump. But anyway, all right. So this is an important uh, moment, uh, 
issue in journalism. Elaborate a little bit. You know, there was this, the LA Times was owned by a family for many, many years. And uh, there was sort of this benevolence Mm-hmm. Benevolence capitalism, if you will, uh, where they treated their, this is my notion of it, correct me if I'm wrong, they treated their journalistic employees relatively well, so there was no mm-hmm. there, no need for a union. It's very similar to the Chicago Tribune, which was openly hostile to unions for many, many years. The people ran the Tribune. Uh, and then when the outsider comes in and buys the operation and suddenly the local, it's not a local concern anymore and you're being treated as though uh, you're a factory in a, an enormous chain and you have no significance, uh, that is when journalists start thinking about forming a union, even if it's been a very paternalistic, benevolently paternalistic operation. Am I correct in the way I've sort of summed things up at the LA Times? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the the way that I had heard about it was it was called the Velvet Coffin. And it was this place you'd go to because you didn't need another job after you got that one. And, you you know, they'd wrap you up and, you know, you'd get first you get to fly first class to any assignments outside of the city. You know, uh, maybe you were lucky enough to 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 go up to the executive suite up on the, the sixth floor of the Times Mirror building and and dine in the executive suite level cafeteria, which was separate from all the, <laughs> the workers. Yeah, it was the velvet coffin. Uh, and, you know, when Sam Zell was over the paper, you know, Sam Zell of course, is a character that pops up in these situations. There was a conversation about unionizing then. Um, but it was, you know, after this just cycle of, of decisions really coming from Chicago, and no offense to Chicago, but, you know, people in L.A. really felt uh, that there was a problem with, you know, uh, executives, A, who didn't have any news background, and B, coming from Chicago, saying, you know, what we should do here and there and uh, in Los Angeles. It was really problematic for folks. So did you have some kind of internal reluctance that you had overcome to unions? I mean, you grew up in Arkansas, not exactly the most union friendly state. Uh, was it something like that that you were you had a- apprehension about when you first were getting involved with the union? I don't know, you know, apprehension is, is maybe one word you could use, but it was more ignorance, right? Like we had the idea, well, we knew that we had all these problems and, you know, now I'd say we had all these grievances, right? We had all these grievances piled up about all the things that they were doing to treat people really poorly. And there was a lack of direction for the publication. It was owned again by this chain, but, you know, we had piled up all these, you know, grievances and it just made sense that like maybe there was a solution to us coming together as workers and just using our our rights as american workers to form you know a union and then collectively bargain a bargain a contract and have a say at the table um that was we were just completely ignorant but as journalists you just have to find answers and so we you know treated it like a journalism project where we were digging in on the story of like well what are the legal requirements what are the issues how have things gone in other uh, union efforts uh, in different publications uh, what works what doesn't work you know how long is this going to be what kind of time cost money cost dues i mean all those questions you just have to find answers and journalists are particularly good at finding answers were you one of the the conveners of the union movement in la or were you more of a follower but in those days uh well uh, you know my strategy tends to be that i i kind of uh, wait around and look and see if anyone steps up to lead and then when does no one does after you know five or ten minutes i'm like all right well here's what we're gonna do uh i, I tend to give people a little bit of space so um 
the, the, the moment that it started, uh, and again, there had been, you know, previous discussions, uh, you know, in, in years and decades prior, but the way that it started really happened uh, when the company eliminated this accrued vacation and there was a discussion in Slack, you know, this internal chat room at the newsroom about how they just made this change without discussing it with us. And someone said on there, someone I know this was, this was Anthony Pesci, uh, who, who, uh, who said this. Anthony doesn't work for, uh, the LA Times and works for the Washington Post. But Anthony said at the time, he said, we should form a union. And then I got up and I walked over to him and I said, yeah, we should form a union. And then we immediately went and found uh, another reporter, uh, amazing woman who was in the business department. And then another guy who was an investigative reporter and then another person, another person, they had a meeting at a restaurant and then it snowballed, right? Like it just became this big effort and organizing drive. And uh, so you were one of uh, several people uh, at the forefront. And so uh, you had a, I presume there was an election, you said. It, they didn't immediately just recognize your union when you collected the cards? No, they, they, they fought it. I think we... We filed for an election in late 2017. We had the SNAP election uh, uh, either at the end of that year or the beginning. No, it was the, I think it was like the 4th or 5th of January because I remember we had to kind of like work around people's schedules with schools starting back up. And, you know, we had the election in person for those that could do it. You know, this like kind of dumpy cardboard box where, you you know, you yeah. X on a yes or a no, right? Yes, yes. Well aware I was, of that. I was yeah. kind of hold up at a bar nearby, you know, yeah. like counting the data and coming up with the projection. And I, I think I did, I did the worst. I was going to do the worst case, middle case and best case projection. And when the worst case projection came back at 70% yes, I was like, let's go get let's go get drinks now over at the bar because uh, we're done. And then we well, went with 85%. 85. I'm not bragging or anything, John, before we move on, but it's a reader. It was a hundred percent. Just saying, man. Um, we could do better. We could do yeah. better. <laughs> no, 85% at the LA times is very good considering the culture, the anti-union culture that is embedded in that newspaper's legacy. All right. So from being part of a contingent of uh, journalists worried about their future at one particular paper and getting to the point now, where you're the uh, president of the News Guild. What made you decide that you wanted to actually leave uh, day-to-day journalism and move over to union organizing, union work? Well, so I saw kind of through that effort that there was a lot more that we could do. And having uh, a journalist um, kind of more, you know, from the rank and file and, and from the current situation in news, because, I mean, you know, everything's changing all the time. The tools that people are using, the issues that people are facing, uh, you know, the, the issues are are, are, are are constantly changing. And so I saw kind of through that effort, it, you know, that we, we needed a different leadership, you know, at the top of this, this union. And I said, well, you know, can I even run? I wasn't even paying dues yet. We didn't have a contract yet. And so I had like a million questions on like, can I even run? And, you know, I, I just basically had this like idea that like, there were so many things that we could do better to modernize the place, to, to make it more aggressive, uh, to, to continue to organize, but work on a lot of, you know, kind of other things that, that, that could just be adjusted. So anyway, you know, I, I started, I, you know, got nominated and seconded at the sector conference. This would have been January of 2019 uh, in Orlando. Um, that got us kickstarted. I challenged an incumbent that had been uh, in this position for 11 years um, and had been part of the News Guild for, I don't know, 40, 45 years. 
um, long established incumbent. And I, you know, and I was like, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this. And I was, I was actually teaching two classes at USC working full time at the LA times. And I'm like, yeah, well, and then we'll run for an election. So, uh, so that, you know, spring I, I ran aggressively for an election fundraised a lot of people, just amazingly people supported me, gave me money. I went, you know, to cities like St. Louis. I went to, to Puerto Rico. I went to Canada where we have members and New York and DC and, uh, the Bay area, Seattle. I mean, just bounced around you know, wherever we had members. Uh, we, we had an election that ended in May. I lost by oh, 250 votes, but I challenged it on, on the issues that I had seen as, as problematic in the election. Uh, didn't, didn't follow the, the LMRDA standards for running a union election, filed challenges in that. And then, you know, thankfully, the, the News Guild's election committee ruled that they needed to have a new election. So we got another shot, another election. Uh, and that kickstarted the whole process again in August. And, you know, by then I didn't have any vacation time. So I had to basically work consecutive days to sort of bank up <laughs> what would become more time off to do more campaigning, waking up at, you know, 5 a.m. every day to call people on the East Coast and, and start campaigning uh, and, you know, we kind of configured our operation to be more aggressive. And then uh, my last day working at the L.A. Times was December 9th. I worked a full day there, had a suitcase packed under my desk. Uh, and then uh, after work, left work, went straight to LAX, got on a plane, flew overnight into New York for the vote count on December 10th. Uh, found out the results that afternoon that, uh, you know, I'd won. Uh, and then on December 11th, I was on a train bound south to D.C. to, to um, get sworn in, to, uh, uh, you know, get started to work. And I've really been in D.C. since December 11th. Now, it was a close election and uh, you got a second bite at the apple because you appealed the first outcome. Uh, have those divisions been healed uh, within the union? Uh, are there lingering factions that are plotting to oust you or do you feel it's a cohesive bunch? Well, I, I, I'm sort of maybe a little bit of a monster. I, I kind of hope that there are people lingering to ask me because I think that <laughs> I could do better, right? Like I yeah. honestly legitimately am like, yes, like tell me what the faults are. Let's let's make our place better and like let's find the best leader for our organization. Uh, and if the members decide that's not me in three years, that's fine. Like we need the best. And I, I completely believe that. So I'm, uh, you know, I, I think that mostly everything's healed because we've got, you know, a situation where, where it's chaos. I mean, we've got, you know, before the pandemic, we had hedge funds circling and chains that just were high, highly over leveraged with these wild finance structures and, you know, never ending organizing and, and just so much energy and so much work to do that. We frankly, we've, we've just got to get on the same footing. And so people have, uh, people have, have really stepped up and, you know, I mean, you know, to, to, uh, uh, the credit of a lot of uh, a lot of people who were on the guild leadership. There's an executive council for for the union, and um, a lot of those people endorsed uh, you know the incumbent and, and ran with him. And they, they've been great partners uh, and and really supportive of of the things that we have to do. And it's not it's not about me or them. It's about all of us working together at the end of the day. All right. It's uh, uh, and one that you alluded to hedge funds. I urge everybody to check out the interview I did with Evan Brand about a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I really, uh, I, I think he's a, a great storyteller and very insightful observer of what's going on with newspapers. He talks about what his battles with Alden and what Alden is doing to his beloved newspaper in suburban Philadelphia. I urge everybody to check that out. Uh, it's a fight when a company, uh, that's one uh, issue that the newspaper uh, union uh, is battling, uh, John, when a hedge fund, which has absolutely no regard whatsoever for the, the, the business it's buying into is 
simply looking to make some money by selling the most uh, worthwhile, as they see it, parts that can fetch the most. And then they just squeeze the industry. Uh, Evan really goes into detail. That's one uh, battle. Uh, what are some of the others aside from the hedge well, fund? type go ahead <laughs> those are big because you know all in global capital has got its tentacles inside you know a lot of different companies lee enterprises which has a lot of smaller local newspapers and places that we've recently organized i mean places you know a couple of years ago like casper wyoming the star tribune there but you know recently cheyenne wyoming and then billings montana mm-hmm. uh, all owned by lee enterprises and alden's got a stake there alden's got a stake in tribune publishing a third of it they own and they've got three out of seven seats on the board at tribune publishing which you know has has led into an effort where we basically, you know, and, and I say we because it's it's the collective members, but, you know, each one of these groups, you know, from Allentown, Pennsylvania, uh, to uh, uh, Hartford uh, in Connecticut, to the Chicago Tribune have launched an effort to try to save these publications from these hedge funds. And we call it uh, broadly the Save the News campaign, which has a legislative component, but also has the Save the Chicago Tribune campaign and sh- Save the Baltimore Sun campaign. Um, and so we're, we've, we've got this battle on our hands that really I think is about saving our democracy because you, you can't have a free society. You can't have free people in this country if you don't have a free press. And a lot of people assume that things are just hunky dory and fine with their local publication, but that is not the case at all. Um, chains are, are swooping in. They've been doing a lot of cuts. These hedge funds have been really aggressive and we even have, you know, the quote unquote white knight owners, these rich billionaires who are doing uh, really terrible things too, to cut and fight, fight the workers. All right. Uh, you mentioned uh, the Save the News campaign. You said there's a legislative component. What's that legislative component? So this is sort of wild for the News Guild because the News Guild, since we represent a lot of journalists, we represent other media workers, interpreters as well, and court systems and the hospitals and, and nonprofit and union staff. But for the most part, the journalists, you know, me being, I guess, a former journalist at this point, realize that, you know, we have to be you know, attempt to be objective, right? There's a really good debate going on about what the hell even being objective means in this moment. Um, But we attempt to try not to show bias or um, uh, favoritism to one political cause or another so that we can try to cover the stories and get to the truth, right? The goal needs to be getting to the truth. Well, that's led the News Guild uh, for at least very recent memory to avoid from any political activity. So we don't do, you know, traditionally what a union does, which is lobby, you know, directly, you know, for legislation on Capitol Hill um, and engage in political act, action to elect one person. I mean, the Guild has for, for decades now, um, you know, abstained from any endorsement for uh, president. And I, I did that again this year. But uh, we've actually engaged uh, on a legislative front, which is which is sort of wild, from the membership level, doing call banking to drafting proposals, building up campaigns uh, to to do a couple of things. The first would be to save the current jobs that are affected by the pandemic. Uh, there's a huge loss in advertising revenue uh, for a lot of news publications, which uh, news publications depend on a lot of advertising revenue in conjunction with circulation. And then a recent thing was events. Well, events are all canceled and the advertising is having a, a big problem right now because businesses are closed, other events are canceled. So people aren't advertising in, in newspapers online or in print. Um, and so we want to save the jobs currently. So we're supporting a, a 
bill, 3718 in the Senate, that would expand uh, the ability for Paycheck Protection Program loans to go to uh, individual news publications inside larger chains. For instance, Gannett, largest newspaper publisher in the country. Uh, They own places like the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, the Palm Beach Post, uh, the Indianapolis uh, paper, Uh, you know, name it, they've got it. And we represent 38 different units uh, in in, in Gannett. And uh, wouldn't it be great if you could direct the money to the Indy Star uh, and or direct it to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel so we could keep people on on the job right now that company is you know claiming economic exigency and uh, you know prior three months ago they they started implementing furloughs so they were asking people not to work not get paid one week per month uh, for uh, three months uh, and that meant that communities all across the country saw a, um, you know, a 25% reduction in reporting capacity of local publications, because that's not getting replaced by someone else swooping in. So we're lobbying, we're pushing, we call it advocating, I guess. I use my words that the people tell me, but advocating for this legislation. But I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm on the phone with, you know, senators and, uh, and Senate staffers, both Republican and Democrat, uh, Democratic, to get them to see the necessary uh, need for local news. Because you, you lose the publication in Casper, Wyoming, it's not going to be replaced by the reporting of the New York Times or, or cable news. Well, so much of the rhetoric uh, being directed at newspapers these days is hostile, fake news, et cetera. Are you finding bipartisan support for this effort? Yeah, we are. You know, 3718 was actually introduced uh, and had some interesting bedfellows. Uh, Not only did it have uh, Amy Klobuchar, whose father uh, was a Guild member working at the Minneapolis Star Tribune, but it also had um, uh, Maria Cantwell, and it was two Democrats, and Chuck Schumer. Uh, the third, and then also uh, John Bozeman from my home state in Arkansas and Joni Ernst uh, from Iowa. Uh, so the two Republicans on there. And, um, and, and so there is a concern for that because I think that, you know, they get the need for local journalism. Uh, you know, you can't represent, for instance, you know, the views of Kentuckians if you don't have a publication in Kentucky. And we don't, you know, we don't get the issues of whether they're labor struggles, whether they're pandemic related, whether they're at, there's also an election happening this year, right? And it's not just an election for the top seat in the country. It's an election for the water board and the school board. And those are issues that are only really covered in, in local news. People need to know who they're going to vote for. Well, let me play devil's advocate with a little bit uh, for a while. Uh, at, at the risk of exposing all the cynicism uh, and jadedism, if there's such a word, that I've uh, developed over all these years in Chicago, I'm wondering if you could expect politicians to come to your aid if you're uh, calling to defend newspapers, because actually, after all, it's the newspapers who in many cases expose things that the politicians don't want you to know. Mm-hmm. So it's, you could argue it's not in their best interest uh, to have a fiercely independent uh, newspaper industry. What's your thoughts about that? Well, only the corrupt politicians don't want the ex- people <laughs> people to be exposed, right? And they can come either in Democrats or Republicans. Um, I, you know, they also expose flaws and other government agencies, right? Misspending by government. Uh, and they provide a le- level of accountability, which, you know, most politicians are concerned about. So um, there are people and, you know, there have been, especially from the president, you know, I don't even like saying that phrase, the FN phrase that you use. I literally won't even say it out loud. But it's it's problematic because it's led to um a culture where people are, are using it over and over again to discount uh, the need for, for truth, the need for uh, alternative sources of information that you can trust. Uh, and it's, I think it's really important for us, especially from the union side, to, to 
beat that drum to say, well, look, you know, this is what happens when you don't have a local publication. Corruption is going to go up. Taxes are going to go up. Partisanship is going to go up because everyone's on Facebook looking at whatever they think, quote unquote, the news is. And there isn't anyone sitting in city council meetings to make sure that like your tax dollars are actually being used uh, in an appropriate way. We mentioned Facebook and uh, I've been meaning to ask you about this. Uh, So much of the advertising revenue that's been uh, channeled away from the newspaper industry, which has exposed us uh, to to uh, dire consequences, has gone to the Facebooks of the world. And uh, any thoughts entertaining about organizing Facebook? And there are thousands of employees that are now, uh, that company is feeding off of newspapers. Uh, Any possibility of organizing Facebook employees? Well, you know, I don't know if it would come from the News Guild. Um, I think the labor movement has to organize Facebook, has to organize Google, has to organize all of these workers because there's a whole segment of the economy where where we have workers who are being abused by these companies. I mean, they work crazy hours. I mean, take like a game development company or even Facebook if they're releasing some new project. They will go on these sprints that they call them where they'll have people working, you know, not 40 hours a week, 60, 70, 80, 100 hours a week to get the work done. And they will go on these aggressive sprints and then no one has a voice or a seat at the table. Um, The organizing has to start internally and you're starting to see, you know, in the last year, uh, outrage from employees about like the ethical situations, the fact that Google is working for, you know, like ICE or that one of these companies is, you know, supporting technology that like leads people to, you know, use drones to, to, to murder people in some distant country. Um, you're seeing people organize around those issues. And I think that frankly, that's kind of where we have to redefine the labor movement because we can, we can, help people (laughs) have a voice using the labor movement. It doesn't have to be building cars, right? Like when I grew up in Arkansas, I was like, oh, that's something that's like, you know, in the Midwest and Detroit, people use labor unions to build cars. Well, every American worker has the right to organize and collectively bargain. Yeah, no, I'm with you're preaching to the choir here. And I remember just sitting, listening to you, John, when the reader, uh, we first started to organize. And again, it's very similar to the situation at the L.A. Times. The uh, originally there was a group of owners at the reader uh, who are very close to the people that they worked with. That they helped put the paper out. Literally, uh, they sold it and it. The, the group they sold it to went bankrupt and then a consortium of businessmen took it over and blah, 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 et cetera, said you keep getting further and further removed from the original concept of a very uh, uh, alternative newspaper with local ownership. And so the reader staffers had this cultural bias toward unions that they kind of had to overcome some of them, not all, but some of them. And you could hear that in the questions that they asked uh, during those those initial moments uh, when we were first organizing your thoughts about getting uh, Facebook workers or Google workers. And I'm with you 100 percent. That's the future, uh, such a key future for unions uh, in this country, getting that workforce unionized. What do you think some of the cultural obstacles you would face uh, when you, you step forward to organize Facebook or Google workers? Well, I think one of the things is that a lot of people want to organize when things are really bad. 
Um, but it's actually really good to organize when things are good because you can lock in, you know, the great pay, you can lock in the good benefits, you can lock in the things that you really like, and you're not starting at a level where you basically got some external boss trashing, you know, your current benefits and you're trying to hold on to those or have some say, you know, in terms of layoffs. So the best time really to organize is when benefits are good. I think that's going to be a huge cultural issue because similar to like the situation with the you know, LA Times or publications in the past is this sort of velvet coffin attitude. So, um, you know, organizing now and, and kind of working through those issues, I think uh, really clearly explaining the rights that workers have. It's not easy to figure that out. And the NLRB website is not the best. <laughs> the NLRB is not a worker advocate organization, uh, but it's not the best at even providing that succinctly. So making sure that it's really clear, here's the toolkit on how you organize. And, you know, it starts with one-on-one -on -one conversations with your coworkers about it. And then, you know, making sure that you are working through the fear by answering questions and bringing questions up and communicating those fears and bringing up your issues and then working on collective solutions to solve them. Well, you know, it's ironic because listening to you, the best time to organize when things are good, can you lock in the goodies, the benefits? But again, psychologically, that may not be the most advantageous time to start a union organizing effort. It seems like the compulsion is when things are bad and you're desperate. That's so often uh, the factor, John, desperation. Like, oh, my God, if we don't do something now, they're going to close our paper. They're going to fire us. We're not going to have any rights. I will have no job security, et cetera, and so forth. So it is interesting for what you're saying is counterintuitive because I think most people uh, take those first step toward organizing when they fear uh, the abyss. Do you agree with me on that? Yeah, I, I think that that is true and i think that we're, we're seeing a lot of that in the current organizing i mean you know this record organizing that we've got we're seeing a lot of that but i think you know the other thing to sort of frame it as is, is it can't be just a reaction to all the bad things we have to make sure that like what we're trying to do is build a future and and you've seen you know every organizing group that the guild you know has now writes a mission statement and you know frankly they write really long mission statements but for the most part they get at what they want to build together like they are trying to save these community assets these news publications not only for us but for our readers um, and that's that's an essential part of trying to save it for our democracy so you build a really good mission statement like that it, it puts the boss in an awkward space because you know if the boss isn't supporting you know saving the institution then what the hell are the boss doing here yeah <laughs> Uh, and uh, yeah, that's a valid point. I like to also point out, I mentioned this to you before we went on the air. Uh, I truly believe, I'm not just saying this because I'm in a union, but uh, in the case of newspapers, I believe uh, that unions protect the integrity of the newspaper. And I was just uh, mentioning this to John in passing. We have a situation here in Chicago where a uh, columnist for the Chicago Tribune wrote an outrageous column that was, uh, uh, in my humble opinion, anti-Semitic and uh, or led to anti could lead, was repeating an old anti-Semitic trope. Uh, anyway, the point is there was a lot of outrage over it and uh, to their credit, I can't say this enough, much appreciation uh, to Charlie Johnson and all the Guild members. They wrote a statement to the uh, the boss of the paper, their boss, and took uh, issue with this, with this column. And I don't think, John, they would have done that had they not been protected by a union because the consequences of employees 
publicly criticizing the policy of their employer are so stark. You lose your freaking job. You know what I'm yeah. saying? But you have protections through the collective bargaining process uh, and enables them to stand up. In my opinion, in this case, they were standing up for their readers. So to me, you, it protects the integrity of the newspaper as well, journalism as well. You agree? Oh, yeah. No, I completely agree. When you want, you know, a good, you know, I mean, used to be, and I think for a lot of people who still, you know, actively involved in the labor movement, right? Like there's this idea that like you want to buy union made because it's it's better, because it's more protected. And when you have union protected journalists, you've got journalists who are not afraid to stand up to a boss who's trying to push like a racist column or a racist attitude. I mean, yeah, the folks in Chicago are amazing, amazing people. Uh, they actually ended up uh, getting voluntary recognition after the LA Times Guild by getting 85% of their members to sign a union <laughs> authorization card. So they kind of whooped our ass on that front. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the, the the other newsrooms across the country, I mean, we've seen, uh, you know, 44 people call sick and tired over a racist headline that appeared in the Philadelphia Inquirer. We had um, uh, complete and utter outrage after the posting of a, a top Cotton editorial that had not been fact-checked uh, uh, and, and didn't even meet, according to the admission of the, the editor, didn't meet the edi editorial standards of the newspaper. And, you know, and, and again, journalists there, you know, violating company policy by tweeting out opinions and criticizing the, the, the publication. But you do it enough in mass, you do it because you've got a righteous fight, um, it, can, it can make changes. And so we've you know, seen editors fired over this racist attitude. And, um, and, you know, I think a real sense from different parts of our membership that they can use the labor movement, that they can use the tools of a union, union organizing uh, to create permanent change that that's frankly it's it's overdue uh and uh in closing let me ask you what are some of the uh, uh union organizing efforts that people should know about that maybe we don't know about here in in chicago uh, that are sort of under our radar well you know just last week we we and i say we because it's really the the, the future members there but we went public with a, a campaign at the dallas morning news which is uh, the first uh, place that we've been in dallas i think since the 90s uh, since the last union paper closed in the 90s there uh, in texas i mean uh and so this is huge for us. And, you know, the, the South has been a place where we didn't have a lot of guild members in Florida, for instance, five years ago, we had, and we had no one in Florida. And now we've got eight or nine different publications where we represent members, you know, uh, several hundred. So Texas, the Dallas morning news. I mean, that's the, that's the publication that coined in 1941 in an editorial, the phrase right to work. Mm -hmm. um, now uh, in a public uh, union organizing effort uh, to create a union there uh, for the first time ever. So that's, uh, that's, a, that's a group that we're really excited about. Uh, you know, we've had recent wins in, in, in Florida and places like Orlando, Palm Beach. Uh, in Palm Beach, they actually had a 100% uh, unanimous vote <laughs> to join the union. Uh, Billings, Montana. Um, uh, you know, we've got digital organizing happening at the Seattle Times, uh, which has been a longstanding union shop on the sort of newsprint side. Um, but there was sort of a, a carve out for digital people. Well, we're organizing there. Um, Idaho Statesman was another one that we won back in uh, April. Um, and that was a, another one that was unanimous and sort of a strange kind of picture because the, the, the you know, the, the count of the cards for the NLRB was done with everyone wearing plastic gloves and sort of over zoom mm. sort of strains, but sports illustrated, um, you know, uh, 
South Bend, Indiana, um, Springfield, Missouri. Uh, you know, it's it's been sort of a wild ride of organizing, uh, and I'm really excited for really. I mean, what we need to do is organize every single media worker and journalist in this country. Uh, I'm with you on that one. And uh, then when we're done with that, go after Facebook and Google. Uh, And maybe we should just start going after Facebook and Google right now. Uh, Of course, not telling you how to do your job, although you technically, (laughs) as you put it, are my employees. So uh, get to work on that Google thing. All right, Schloes. John, uh, if anybody wants to get more information about some of these union organizing efforts or the Save the News campaign, where can they go? Well, they can find out a lot more about the Save the News campaign at savethenews.org. Uh, and, you know, we've also got all these other Save the Efforts, Save Our Baltimore Sun, Save Our Chicago Tribune, uh, com, And so uh, they can go there. Uh, we've also, you know, got our website, which is a little bit scrappy, but newsguild.org. And then a lot of our locals, you know, the Chicago uh, News Guild has a website, New York News Guild, nyguild.com. We've got, um, we've got a lot there. All right. Very good. Thank you so much, John, for taking the time. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be on. That's uh, John Schloes. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everyone. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.